0: Still making their way in, so I'm going to just give us a chance to all be in this beautiful weather, this beautiful day. This is our um, question platform, and many of you have written questions and sent them ahead to me. But as you came in, you might have seen that there were index cards and um, pens. So um, if anyone has more questions that you want to ask me, you are empowered to jot them down right now and to send them forward in the next five minutes or so. So you can jot it on your program or on an index card. Shayla's got index cards, um, and so does Heather. Or, um, and so raise your hand if you have a burning question you'd like me to answer. Jot it down, bring it forward. and. Um, if I don't like it, I'll pretend it's illegible. Um, <laughs> sometimes these question platforms are referred to as stump the chump platforms. What <laughs> does with them, and whether you can stump them? And so I thought, for opening words, I wanted to begin with some words from Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, in writing about the clergy role, as he saw it. When he was founding the tradition of which we are a part, he wrote about what he imagined in the clergy leadership in a chapter um, called The Priests of the Ideal. He talks about what might come to mind with the name of priesthood and how that isn't what it is that he needs, These new priests of the ideal. men's reverence and a new service of the infinite and a new priesthood able modern priesthood that I would speak of. the priests to whom we shall allude shall not be known by cassock or surplice for their it is not at the altar the least of all shall they have dogmas to They shall not be more than human, only, if possible, more human. Priests have we of science, we name them so, men whose soul is wrapped up in the pursuit of knowledge, priests of art who dedicate their lives to the service of the beautiful, priests also of the moral, artists of the good, sages in the science of virtue, teachers of the ideal. Those are big words to describe the clergy leadership, and so I invite you to join in our opening song, which presents a little bit more of what you're looking for in a clergy
1: join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby of the social hall. Also, please consider sharing with us your contact information on this gold sheet that you can find in your program. You can put that in the collection basket as it passes later in the service. I would like to remind everyone to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present this morning. Um, But in the process, you want to send a wish for hear message on social media feel free. <laughs> I now invite Bob Corny, to come forward to read our statement of purpose so that we may hear our shared values in each other's voices. Uh, let me turn the microphone on for you, Is that help? Um, Bob is a member of the community relations committee that is uh, working on drafting guidelines for how we relate to each other in the community, and they are very interested in getting input from all members of the West community. They're having a meeting today at noon downstairs, uh, and they would welcome your participation in that. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the work of every person.
2: We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit with faith in human goodness. We appreciate each You're the unique capacity. With faith in human goodness, is that better? Yes. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacity. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. If you are new to our community of children we warmly invite like you to join us as we work for a world of work,
1: love, and justice across all borders. Thank you, Bob. As Bob lights the candle, I
3: invite you to join in our candlelighting words on the screen here.
1: this bell each week in solidarity with people around the world. Today I'm thinking particularly of the family of John McCain and all the people whose lives he touched over the years. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world. let us commit ourselves to all it calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Take a moment to get as comfortable as you can in the seat. If you feel comfortable doing that or just let the focus soften in front of you and start by taking a few deep breaths. meaning they have to you. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now, perhaps will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer.
0: Facebook page, Um, so you can go and get more answers there. To the extent that my answers are, are interesting. I think, you know, one of the things that I love most about this platform is actually seeing what kind of questions people have. It's way more about the questions, right, than whatever answers I might come up with. It's about knowing what's on people's minds and what they're wondering about. And as usual this year, there are a number of questions Cluster together, right? People are wondering about the same kinds of things in this community, which makes sense. We have some similar things on our um, on our minds. There were um, there were several questions that were sort of about my own journey and experience, and I'm going to do a little tiny bit of answer there, um, uh, just because I, you know, I've been here ten years. so Folks who have been around a while probably are actually bored hearing about my um, own journey. So. Um, so the question that I got uh, by email was I would be interested in hearing about your own spiritual journey, how you navigated religion and belief as you grew up, and then where you ended up in terms of core beliefs. So many of you know that I was raised as a Unitarian Universalist in a, essentially a humanist community congregation in upstate New York. Uh, I actually wasn't raised there at the very beginning. Um, my mother forgot to take me anywhere. Um, and she just didn't pull it together. Um, or, <laughs> To an overnight and um, went to her church that Sunday morning, the way you often do. Came back and announced that that was the church I wanted to go to. My mother was concerned. Um, and then when it turned out to be the UU congregation, she said, "Oh, we are Unitarian Universalist. So just didn't really set that up yet." <laughs> so, I started attending in fourth grade, and then eventually my mother started coming with me for quite some time. And she just dropped me off at was. And, um, and then I was involved all through high school and college and, um, and then eventually went to seminary a few years after college. And it's an interesting thing because so many of you all, so many of the people that I serve, have journeys where you have really changed your religious and spiritual experience, your ethical experience over your lifetime. Perhaps you were raised in a tradition very different than this one. Perhaps you were raised completely secular and uh, and have had these big shifts, and that really hasn't happened to me. Of course, I learned about ethical culture when I um, when I started looking at this position and and went through training to become an ethical culture leader. But so much of that was really simpatico with my Unitarian Universalist values and beliefs. That again, it felt like an expanding a, a more rather than an abrupt shift or change. And I think. So what I would say is, I feel really lucky to have been raised in a tradition, and ethical culture is the same, where I was able to take little detours and explore different ways of understanding myself in the world spiritually and ethically, and stay within the arms of the tradition, stay within the movement, because that kind of exploration is welcomed and encouraged. And at the same time, I think sometimes it, it gives me a disadvantage, I haven't had the experience of really thinking dramatically differently over the course of my life. I will say, sort of those core beliefs have really stayed the same for me, and that's been around the work of every person, and the idea that we're all connected to each other in some deep way that goes really even beyond our understanding, right? A deep and and radical, as in at the root way, we are connected as one family um, of people and connected to the world around us. So that's what I would say about that. Relatedly, somebody asked in the movie of your life, who would play you? I was. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, you all should answer it, right? Like, I'd be very curious to see your answers. I will say um, I would um, uh, have a very deep affinity to Amy Fuller's character in Parks and Rec. <laughs> and so uh, she just would need to dye her hair. So that would be that's my answer to that one. Um, another one that was certain about me was do you ever feel like the Wizard of Oz? That was enjoyable. <laughs> I think they literally mean, like, behind the curtain, you know? Um, with a rapid voice, which I guess I could in fact, you be behind the curtain and you'd all still hear me on the microphone <laughs> um, You know, it's interesting, I do think that my job has an element of sort of, um, uh, working behind the scenes and then having it sort of show up in a public way, often very differently than what I'm necessarily experiencing. One of the things I thought about a lot in sabbatical is that there's relatively few people in this community who have as many conversations as I have, and so I have, the, um, I have the advantage and the challenge of hearing from so many people and knowing that people are in lots of different places in their own lives and in, in what they're thinking about and what they're wishing for at best. And uh, and then part of my job is to synthesize that somehow and try to put it together. So I think that would be the way I would feel sort of like I'm be behind the curtain with sort of all of this information trying to put it together in one coherent giant green head, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so as we have every year, there were several questions that essentially are a version of how do we, this is the one I'm ahead of time, how do we both recognize that some people are ultimately dangerous people, people that have taken very uh, wrong actions by setting strong, healthy boundaries while also keeping our faith in the goodness of humanity? And that was, an, i had several questions Then again, um, that are along those same lines that folks wrote in. In the original case, the person was talking about personal relationships, people in our immediate sphere that we cannot now be in relationship with because they have been harmful and we can't allow that allow that into our lives. But you can also think about it on the big, the big level. And I think one of the questions I had was, what, what belief have you struggled with the most? And I would say this is it, right? I think this is what we all struggle with the most, or what at least I often hear you reflecting back to me. how. How do we uphold our belief in the worth of every single person? Every person is worthy. And at the same time, handle and understand the fact that sometimes people behave in truly reprehensible ways, everything from pretty bad to, you know, pretty bad. And that sometimes that means that we have to set boundaries around how those people are in our lives. And I think it's really helpful for me, at to make a clear distinction between the person and the behavior. As an ethical culturist and as a Unitarian Universalist, it is part of my faith understanding that every person has worth, and even more, that every person has the possibility for change, that no one is beyond that possibility. Um, Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, puts it this way, we're all better than the worst thing.
1: And so I I
0: believe that truly and deeply. And that doesn't mean that all behavior is okay. Uh, A way that I've heard this articulated by colleagues is that no person is outside the circle of love, but plenty of behaviors are outside the circle of community or the circle of our lives. And so what that sometimes means is putting very clear boundaries around those behaviors and the way that people are able with us or be in relationship with us, while holding on in sort of a deeper philosophical way to the worth that they have as a human being and to the possibility for change. Now it may be that the relationship is so damaged that that change won't be able to enter them back into your life, but it could change their own lives and relationships with other people that they might have. Um, So it's this sort of simultaneous belief in the possibility But rejection of the naivete, that change is for sure going to happen, Um, and being able to create those boundaries. And then I think, you know, the the original question when we got to the faith and the goodness of humanity, and what I would say is, for me, my faith is in the possibility of goodness in each person. And a faith in the general goodness of humanity as a whole, that we have that possibility together to move toward the good and the right. It isn't actually in the idea that every person is good. right? People make wrong and bad choices, but I believe always they have the possibility to choose better. They have the possibility to do right um, with a deep and complicated postmodern understanding that right is different, different context, right? You know, you know that. And, um, and that even if they don't do better and choose right, that they still have work as So, it's a little bit of a different um, uh, way of articulating that big thing that has been helpful to me in my own uh, own life. Relatedly, I had a great question about, um, it wasn't really a question, was I'd like to hear more discussion about how liberals and progressives should talk with Republicans and Trumpers. And um, the person gave a little bit of context that this person is in conversation regularly, has a relationship um, with folks who believe very differently um, and has an opportunity for that conversation. I will say, given that context, that actually maybe this person should answer that question, which seems like, if they're having success, that's awesome. Um, but the other context was really wondering and feeling that the resistance modality, which is certainly one that we've talked about here in this community and that you see out in the world around us, isn't, isn't maybe the right uh, way to move forward that it sets up barriers. And again, I would say my answer for this is that it's really about context. So I like to think about policy, same way we talked about like a person and behavior, I think about people and about policies. So in the context of a person that you have a relationship with, if you yourself are in a privileged enough space that you're able to be safe with that person, that believes very differently than you. Then I think relationship and conversation is eminently possible and um, and beautiful to create. And in that context, again, you're privileged enough in that space, in that conversation, your livelihood, your self, and your worth is not at risk in the conversation, then by all means, you're probably not gonna have the best chance to start that conversation by beginning with resistance, right? You're gonna begin with commonality and connection and understanding, and over time, both of you learn and grow within that. When you're looking at policies, though, right, you're talking about a child being kept in a cage, you're talking about families being separated from each other or over-policed communities of color, I think that's where, for me, resistance shows up, right? So there's this kind of relationship hole when we're with people, and then a space for us to be able to be in solidarity against a particular policy that is causing harm. Um, And I think especially for those of us who, like me, carry a relative amount of privilege in our society, that we have the option to do sometimes both of those things. Each of us might have a natural bent toward one or another, and I think that's okay too, right? If you're a person that really is able to do that relationship piece beautifully, then by golly, do it. That is needed. If that's not where you are, either because of your social location or your personality, and instead you're able to be in solidarity around resistance to the policies that are harming people in our country, then show up there, and if you can be in both places, be in both places. But to me, that context is really vital when we look at different ways to approach our country, both the healing and connection that is needed, and also the clarity again of the boundaries around how we treat people and harm in our country. Um, so that's where I look at that. Um, let's see. Um, oh, this is good too. Um, how do you think WEST members can best work for inclusiveness in traditionally less inclusive community organizations? So I imagined this question to be, there's a, a person from WEST who has a desire for inclusive uh, organizations and is working outside WEST community organization elsewhere, um, and how can that person bring inclusiveness into that, um, into that organization? And, so I jotted down a couple of things that I have found helpful um, when, when I've been in that position, which I feel like I am regularly. Other times I'm in community organizations that are light like years beyond where I am or Wes is in terms of inclusiveness, and I'm learning, right? But there are some cases where I feel like I'm the person trying to bring that framework, to bring an anti-oppression framework, inclusivity framework, et cetera. And so what I've done is um, recommended shared reads I've right? found like, a pretty accessible book or article, and asked that everybody on the board that I serve on, for instance, uh, read that together. Um, uh, i asked who's not at the table, right? Like I've just noticed things. Sometimes just noticing out loud can be really helpful. Gosh, who's not here? Who is not represented in our conversation right now? Is there a way that we can expand who's at the table? And maybe that means taking some of the people who are currently at the table, slightly away from the table for a little while, so we have plenty of room at the table, right? And then finally, and this is particularly true for those of us who have um, some point of power in an organization, like especially if you're asked to speak somewhere on a panel or to the press or something like that, that one of the techniques that can be used quite practically is just to say that you won't come unless somebody who's typically underrepresented in that area also comes. So um, I have, a couple male colleagues who have done this, right? They, they're asked to speak on a panel, it's going to be five men, and they say, Well, I'm, I'm not going to go, I would rather have a woman in my place, or I'll only come as long as there are women represented on the panel. As a white person, I've done that, right? Like, I, I'm not going to have an all white panel on anti racism, for instance. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I feel like somebody's missing from this conversation.
3: Um, and, and so, if you want me
0: to come, else needs to be at the table? How can we make this happen? So some, like, just really practical ways to make a change in organizations um, from that standpoint. Okay, let's see. Um, is it normal to want to take a break from being ethical sometimes? <laughs> and wearables, um, um, and are just really
2: different from my regular life, which doesn't
0: have a lot of repairs and wearables, Well, it makes me well-known here. <laughs> <laughs> However, I will say, it's normal to want to take a break. I don't think I can give you the out that you're allowed to. You know, should join my
1: family sometime. We like to watch old movies. I really enjoy
0: kind of classic movies, uh, with my kids especially. However, you may not want to watch with us because there's a lot of remote pausing. <laughs> and then we have to stop and talk about the way that systemic racism is showing up and the kind of themes of this movie so that we can understand it more fully. Then we go ahead, again, romantic comedies. There's a lot of gender conversation, we right? <laughs> um, watch romantic comedies together. Um, or, you know, musicals, just a lot of pause. Have the chat. My girls are adding something thoughtful so that I understand that they've got it and it's done it with the music man. So, yeah, okay, so but yes, it is normal to want to take a break. I'm sorry you're not <coughs> <lying>. Okay, <laughs> if I find a $20 bill lying on the street but I'm a grown adult with a paying job, what should I ethically do with that $20 bill? I love that question. First of all, I'm going to assume the context of the question is that the paid job I have is sufficient for my basic needs, and that this isn't a person working two minimum wage jobs and still unable to uh, afford rent in the DMV, right? So, insert conversation about economics here and what a paying job means. That's okay. We're going to assume that you have a paid job, you have enough for that <coughs> to find a $20 bill. I actually think that the ethical response is the, is the what I also believe to be the most satisfying response is to use it on someone else in um, a fun and unexpected way. So um, you could certainly give it to uh, organization, something like that, send it as a donation. Um, but $20 is unlikely to make a big difference for the majority of organizations. And so I personally would just have more fun using it to give to somebody on uh, a GoFundMe page who's trying to raise funds personally for medical uh, insert conversation here about how GoFundMe is now actually the largest insurer of payers uh, of medical bills of um, Yeah, I don't know. Facebook said it. Um, <laughs> Um, that's what I would do with it. I think there are other ethical responses, but they don't seem as fun to me as giving it away and getting the enjoyment and pleasure of that person's response and your own experience of altruism. Um, taking that sort of good luck and fighting down the street and turning it into something really fun and positive. Okay, let's see. How can we balance the many and sometimes conflicting ethical needs that the world presents us? And the examples that this questioner gave, um, well, were the straw debate, right? Banning straws for the sake of the environment versus not judging about straws because some people need them for accessibility purposes. And then another example around sending your kid to a fancy school so they can get a lucrative job and donate to important causes, or sending your kid to public school because everyone should have equal access to education. I don't know, those were both interesting. I will say on the straws, I think that that's really uh, both and an opportunity to look at intersectional justice, the whole, so I'm not sure how many of you followed sort of the straw debate um, where information became came out about plastic straws being a significant environmental hazard. Now I will say that on the realm of environmental hazards in the entire world, I'm not sure that plastic straws are the number one environmental hazard, I might say factories. Um, <laughs> But, um, and so then there was a movement to ban plastic straws. The problem is that for some folks uh, with disabilities or with challenges swallowing, plastic straws are actually the safe way to be able to drink, right? Metal straws don't work as well because they get cold or um, and don't work with hot beverages, it's more problematic, um, etc. cetera, et yeah, straws. Like there's all the other reasons plastic straws are a disability access yes, and um, accessible Um, And I think in that case, I'm not even sure that it's really about sort of balancing different ethical needs. I think it's about being a little flexible, right? Like a straw. Um, (laughs) A little understanding. uh, And to consider reducing the number of plastic straws that we consume. If we do not need a plastic straw for our own safe drink consumption, we could choose not to use a plastic straw. If a straw is needed, it could be available, right? Um, I think that was that was sort of set up as this like you have to choose, and I think in reality there is a way that we as a community can look at all of the needs that intersect with each other and find a way forward that is supportive of accessibility and also reduces enviro- environmental impact overall. So the broader question, though, about sort of you know how we make how we balance ethical decisions, I think, is such a hard one, and I know it's one that. That many of you struggle with as thoughtful engaging people you're aware that we are part of an inescapable system of, um, of ethical polls right you know that every decision we make is going to have positive and negative consequences for ourselves and our own lives for people that we know and for people that we will never know and in fact you can't even imagine How overwhelming that can be. I remember the decision around diapers was like practically, ethically paralyzing when I was a young parent. You know, what was I going to be able to manage in my own life? What would be most appropriate ecologically? What would I ended up with G diapers, which you like flush part of and tear and wash another part, and then there's another thing that they're really cute too. They were brightly colored, but um, (laughs) um, just People think about. But anyway, we are caught in these sort of ethical tanglements in our lives. Um, and so I think there's an element in that question that is simply having to live with the reality that that's true for us and that each of us are trying to make the best decisions possible as we have information. We learn new information and wish we'd done it differently um, and then make it. Decision. I tend to go utilitarianism, which is a philosophical concept that says the most good for the most people is the right decision, so I try to use that as a way to make when I have choices to make. Um, and then I also like the headline approach, which is if your decision were on tomorrow's newspaper headlines, oh. would you be happy about that? Would you feel comfortable or at least able to defend the position? Or would you be running out purchasing every copy in the mile radius of your home so that your neighbors didn't know, right? Um, You know, there's not, I think, because of the interconnectedness of our world, um, particularly the way that capitalism and sort of the world economy play together, there are no pure decisions that we're able to make. Um, And so we have to sit in the challenge and the reality day we'll try to do a little bit better, to learn a little bit more. Related to that question, I had two questions that were around immigration and sanctuary specifically, and I'll, I'll say sort of broadly, as ethical culturists, is our moral duty around immigration in this country, and in particular around sanctuaries, and so providing sanctuary to undocumented One of the questions was specifically about Wes, here in this space, and and then another question was kind of broader and more individual, right? Not Wes as a community necessarily, but each of us individually. Um, And so one thing I would say is sometimes in this conversation, I hear people equating support with immigrants entirely with providing sanctuary to undocumented. Uh, Immigrants, And so I think it's important to keep in mind that there are many ways to support immigrants in our country. And if we can't do that, or choose not to do that, it doesn't give us a pass on the rest of it, right? It can be a little, there's a little bit of like all or nothing thinking that we can get by. I should have backed up and said that this question assumes, and I would agree, that the immigration system in our country is inherently um, unfair, uh, inhumane, and sort of built uh, from its start on some element of systemic racism in it. And I think that we see that, um, I see that in our immigration. So obviously, on the one hand, if you think that the immigration system is totally working fine for everybody, and basically fair, then you wouldn't feel a moral compulsion to do anything about it, right? Um, if you did, however, let me feel that moral compulsion, I think it's important to think about the many ways that there are to support, so accompaniment, uh, helping in citizenship workshops, um, protests, donating money at the border to lawyers that are working with children and other families at the border, and donating money here to lawyers that are able to support folks in immigration reasons Mm -hmm. here, supporting Wes's own political asylum seeker, so we have been supporting a political asylum seeker for the last year or so. I've she needs a ride to Baltimore on Tuesday. Um, Come see if you wanna give it to her. Um, Like literally, right, there are very real ways to support people in the moment here in in many ways. I think the question of housing undocumented immigrants individually for a a person comes down to risk factors that that person is able to take, which often has to do with sort of their own family. So a single parent with dependent children, I don't think would have a, a moral duty to risk the the safety of those children by risking arrest with undocumented, undocumented family in their home. Um, but I think, I, I would say that those of us, again, who have relative privilege in any particular system, and I have relative privilege within the immigration system for sure, we move forward in this country, have a moral duty to show up in some way, in some kind of solidarity with those not experiencing privilege, and figuring out what are the many options of ways to support is part of that complicated series of choices, right? There's not necessarily one right and one wrong, but I do think that we are um, called by duty to show up in some way uh, within that system. That was a little bit of a hedge, but it's complicated. Uh, Let's see. To my time here. What was the hardest class you ever took in seminary? The, uh, <laughs> ethics?
3: <laughs> so there was a
0: Christian theology and ethics class that I took. It was the only um B I got in seminary. And it was kind of embarrassing when I was applying to this job and, I <laughs> and that was the class I struggled with. It relates to another question I received, which is how do we talk with um with people who believe that you must be Christian in order to be good. And that was really the struggle that I had with that class. Right, I went to a Christian seminary, I loved it, I was a welcomed guest in that setting. Um, It was a very diverse theological setting, um, and I had really wonderful experiences. That particular class was taught by an adjunct faculty member who I think really had not encountered non-Christian theologians or ethical thinkers in the past, and struggled with, my final paper, which which was supposed to give my grounding for ethics, and my grounding for ethics doesn't happen to come out of a Christian setting. It doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible provides stories that I find inspiring and connecting, but it's not the grounding for my ethics, and I think ultimately, you know, that didn't quite pass monster for him, Um, or maybe it just wasn't well written. That's possible, too. (laughs) So, um, and so I think, you know, when you're Right in a relationship with someone who really feels that you can't be good unless you are Christian or unless you are Jewish or etc. Right, built in the lane that the best way to convince them is um, actually very biblical. It's by your fruits. Right. So the Bible says that our faith is seen by our fruits. And so being in relationship with someone who may not have encountered uh, someone who's a non non traditionally spiritual or identifies as human or agnostic or atheist, if that's how you identify, we have got people that have lots of ways in this community. The best way to build that relationship is to let them see you acting as a good person, to share how your, um, how your action is inspired by your belief in the work with other person, to share how your action is inspired by um, being in relationship with the people in your community. So that after their relationship with you, that person's mind may be changed Has, um, proved them wrong, right? Who by their fruits has shown their ability to act for um, goodness um, and for uh, a, a complicated postmodern understanding of the right. Okay, two more though real quick. Did Felix Adler have a favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> Felix Adler the founder of ethical culture. I asked the leaders this question, actually. Um, <laughs> Uh, no one knows, I mean that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> one, said, um one, one leader said, uh, well he spent every summer out in nature connecting with the you know, the world in the Adirondacks and upstate New York, and so she posited that green could have been his favorite color. <laughs> um, that's not funny. um and then the other one is kind of an inside um, joke in ethical culture, um, which is that his favorite color was all the colors of the manifold. <laughs> <laughs> The ethical manifold is yeah. Felix Adler's understanding that we are all connected to each other. So all the colors of the manifold. I thought that The final question I wanted to answer, and as I said, I did, I didn't get to quite all of that, but is um, what is the question you hope no
2: one ever asks <laughs>
0: Right, around my personal life and my family life. Um, and so I don't get your questions that I feel uncomfortable answering. And, um, and I, I feel as though, you know, for the most part, my life is a pretty open book. Um, and it, it makes me really come back to that quote from Felix Adler that I opened us with this morning. The idea that um, the priesthood that he was setting up within was not one of people who were more than human or or better. They shall not be more than human at the road. Only, if possible, more human. And so I hope appropriate boundaries uh, assumed that there's actually no question I would uh, really not want to be asked and answer um, because I would hope that part of my job is just to be human, right, with all of you, and to mess up, and have bad answers sometimes, and bad choices, and um, and be able still to be in relationship just as all of us are, right? We make mistakes, we learn from those mistakes, we try to do better, and we stay in community with each other. Thanks.